Hello and welcome to the Rethink Energy podcast for the 17th of September with myself, Andres Fontenar, and my colleagues, uh, Harry Morgan, Simon Thompson, and Peter White. Okay, so that, I mean, that first story illustrates that point about this be, all being politics, the issue being politics, but the subject of energy being politics. The OECD trying to usurp the natural, probably right, the UN to um, control carbon pricing. I mean, that is that is nothing but politics. It's trying to take control of something that they, they were never in favour of to start with, Harry. Yeah, I mean, you, you can sort of see where they're coming from if you think, oh, yeah, the UN aren't doing anything at the moment. But I think the OECD wanting this sort of global approach to carbon pricing is sort of anything but really a, a push for, for a unanimous global carbon price. Um, obviously, you've got to remember that the OECD represents a very small and concentrated number of countries, all who've got a lot of money and all generally have been fairly progressive in terms of uh, climate action. And essentially, the OECD is basically just saying that it deserves the sort of central role in defining this global carbon price um, due to the sort of success it's had in implementing pr- principles around things like international corporation tax um, and other sort of taxation like that. So, but really what it wants to do is protect sort of free, unregulated trade um, and just prevent any sort of trade wars between these countries. I think basically it's what this is, it's a retaliation to the EU's carbon border mechanism and a a way of trying to prevent what they're calling sort of protectionist measures being implemented. I mean, they've said in the past that that sort of carbon border tax would be, it should be a last resort. And now saying that it should be the one to manage it just seems very peculiar. Yeah, but it is Um, a last resort. I mean, that's, that's the annoying thing about it is we're already on the last resorts. Wake up, smell the coffee. You know, this is, we're already on the last resort. The European Union can see no other way of preventing dirty goods coming into its its domain. Yeah, I think also one thing you have to remember is also the carbon border mechanism will be fairly. It won't be. It won't have a massive scope at first either. It should be a fairly limited scheme. It would be limited to very few industries, so it's not going to have massive impact on African economies that are importing into Europe. It will. It will obviously have an impact, but it's not going to be nearly as severe as the OECD is uh, anticipating. I think the the worst thing that about but this it needs to is be that... severe. I mean, in the end, fossil fuels digging for fossil fuels must become against the law. It must become illegal. Now, at a critical point in history when we don't really need fossil fuels, someone should be looking five years ahead and say, in five years in this country, I'm going to make it illegal, and 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 slowly in twenty. 3540, we'll be talking about laws to make this illegal. So to make it taxable now is just step one in the process of eliminating it. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's what we need. We need this tax and we do need it on a global scale. But that's what the OECD is really pushing against. What they're saying is that countries like the US, countries like India, countries like China, where there's they're implementing other ways of theoretically reducing their emissions, all heading towards some sort of net zero. They're saying that these measures should be considered as sort of a um, an alternative to a carbon price. So basically, they're going to come up with this international global carbon pricing scheme and say, actually, you can join it if you want, but otherwise just do something else, um, which mean, which just undermines the idea completely. It means that there's not going to be a global carbon global floor for carbon prices, but this is exactly what we need if we're going to prevent sort of the, the trade of carbon heavy goods around the world. I think that's... And also, what um, happens to that money? What happens to that taxation? You see, if, if the European Union says we're going to 
put a carbon border adjustment mechanism on your imports and import tax, what happens to the money? If you spend it on renewables, it, it just accelerates the process. Yeah, and, definitely. And there's, and there's no way you can spend that money on anything else. There's no way you can take that money and spend it on uh, infrastructure projects, fossil fuel projects. There's always going to have to be clean uh, clean energy measures. It's an absolute no-brainer, really, in terms of what you're spending that on. Yeah, and the other um, thing is, if you're a up-and-coming African or Southeast Asian nation, and you're saying, I'd like to trade with Europe, and, and someone says to you, yeah, but you know that deal where you're you're agreeing to Chinese finance on the Belt and Road Initiative to build six more coal plants? That's going to scupper your trading relationship with the EU for the next 25 years. And you're going to be operating at a price disadvantage throughout that time. It's going to guide their behaviour. Yeah, definitely. And I think that's what we need. Um, there will be countries that complain and there will be a certain amount of inequity through the transition. But that's happening anyway. Uh, that'll happen with the with, when that happens when oil prices fluctuate. So it's I mean, and China will be on, on this. America will be on this. Look, yeah, yeah. Carbon uh, border adjustment. Great. But if we do this, will you knock it down to that for us? And people deals will be cut. Yeah, I, but I think I think I don't think that has to be viewed as a bad thing. I think that's what's probably. I mean, I've, I said this at the end of the article quite speculatively. Uh, speculatively, I say that I, it's something we're not going to see at COP26. It's, I mean, discussions maybe started, but maybe at COP27 we'll see China agree. Okay, we'll sign an agreement with the US and the EU about. Okay, we'll we'll agree this. We'll we'll agree a floor for a carbon price, and if other countries then join that, then. It's a real way that you can suddenly start saying, OK, we'll increase it this year, we'll increase it this year. And then by 2030, a global carbon price of sort of $75 per tonne will be in place. So what was the um, news this week with the OECD specifically? Was it basically just a diplomatic statement reflecting the opinions of the OECD's governments? It was the um, Matthias Kormann, who's the Secretary General of the OECD, he has basically been meeting up with those of EU officials trying to push them to let the OECD actually drive the global carbon price and come up with a system where, yeah, you can probably have a less aggressive carbon board attack and let other countries decide whether or not they're going to implement a carbon pricing scheme or whether or not they're going to implement other me- other mechanisms around that. So it's it's primarily been the OECD trying to get its foot in through the door before the uh, discussions really ramp up at COP26. So the the contrast must come from the OECD members that aren't in the EU, like the UK and uh, the US, actually, and Australia. I I think it's just the the role that the OECD's had in global politics rather than um, the EU itself. I think the OECD's always been very much a proponent of free trade. It's always been very closely tied with the WTO. um, It depends on the points that leadership the executive it's the executive who set policy isn't it yeah exactly it was very interesting uh, as well like almost just a couple of hours after the, uh, we published our article about it the uh, an ex-french um energy minister came out and spoke out against the oecd proposals saying pretty much exactly what we've said as well so yeah i think it's something that i don't think the oecd will be able to get away with this but i think the idea of a global carbon price is something that will start to accelerate i think that's going to be the next the next big role in terms of the next big push in terms of climate legislation on a global scale. I think once the US implements its own carbon pricing scheme, that's when suddenly you see the, link, the links start to be drawn. I think the EU to the US, the US to China, I think that's going to be 
how this comes into play. It'd be interesting to see whether or not Australia gets on board. I think that that would be a key. Only the other way around. I mean, it's Europe to China. Yeah, sorry, that's what I mean. <laughs> yeah, and China strong arms America, and at that point, Australia, uh, yeah, America says, well, I'm sorry, Australia and Japan and South Korea, you're in. Um, the second item. Uh, uh, it was issue. your piece on Redwoods battery recycling. Yeah, yeah, no, it's just um, again a. Uh, uh, Part of what I've just argued about carbon border mechanism uh, applies here. If you if you extract your cobalt in um, in part of Africa and then you put it in a cathode uh, and the lithium comes from some other country and you do it in China and you export the product to America, you've already sent it three times around the world. If then you you keep repeating that when there's recyclable recyclable um, lithium recyclable cobalt then you're just making the same mistake again and again and again so um, I think Redwood has spotted very clearly that you need to take this idea of the lowest the shortest route between two points if a car car's battery needs recycling you want to take it no more than 50 miles away do the work on it and then move the um, components to a factory nearby to make another one um, to put it into a car which is sold another 50 miles away rather than going halfway around the world 10 times and economically not not in terms of climate change but economically that makes sense and um, uh, you know it, it is obviously this guy um, JB Straubel he's called JB um, uh, who was one of the Tesla co-founders, can see a very clear view of this. Um, and he's obviously, we started off thinking that Redwood, well, recycling lithium, surely someone's doing it, you know, aren't they? Well, isn't it going to be a low margin business? No, it's going to be the owner of all the lithium. Uh, now, obviously, if you're given a, a, a contract to, JB, to, to, to Redwood to recycle your lithium batteries, they're still yours. So they don't belong to Redwood. But since Redwood have already done part of the job, you're going to let them do more of the job. And you're going to end up with a very high margin coming to that type of business, possibly a higher margin than um, than uh, battery makers that have flo- when the market's flooded with them. The, the so, installation mu- must be huge. You know, the, um, the machinery and the equipment to actually do all this on this scale it's it's going to be massive this this place yeah i mean harry have you got any notion of how they um, break down batteries i mean they just crush them into powder and then separate them out chemically don't they yeah i'm pretty sure that's how the process works i'm not 100 sure i'm not a chemist but um <laughs> yeah i think that i think it's very much a, a separation then you sort of grind it grind it down and reprocess it sort of situation yeah, I mean, take as much hand work out of it as possible so that there's 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 a small amount of labour as possible and the highest percentage re- re- recyclability. Uh, and the, anything else that's left, any slurry, has got, also got a purpose. You, know, you make it into car parts or whatever, you know, um, that, that you don't waste any of it. Yeah, and that, I mean, the, the, the big problem with this is there are more EVs right now in Europe than there are in either China or America. Actually, China, there might be more. It's neck and neck. So the recycling opportunity is going to be with the car. All right, it's with every kind of battery, but with the car. And um, 
the volumes will be achieved first and the profitability will achieve first in, in China and Europe. Those companies will be more advanced and have more money than Redwood and will then set up business in America. And, and you know, he's right, you know, being very smart and being at the middle of the largest uh, uh, capitalist state in the world, um, he may have, have made his move early enough to raise the money early enough and paint the vision ahead of other people that he, he can um, uh, he can do a very good job and maybe hold um, everyone out of America. But the truth is, there's less going on there. It's 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 behind China, Europe, and the rest of the world. Their last smallest market share, they do have access to money. That, that, that's true. But what do you think about in terms of the actual EV market growth and stuff? Because obviously we've seen over the past month that I think it was I think I sent you a link earlier, Peter, that it was sort of 26 percent of sales of, uh, of all vehicles were electric this month. But in the US, that was only three percent. So surely the money is going to flow away from the US and towards other markets. Yeah, I mean, so often it's American money funding European country, companies or funding Chinese companies to operate in Europe, you know, yeah, but it's, at the moment, they still have a, a finger in the pie because a lot of it is American money. But you're right, you know, they, I mean, a whole renewables industry, uh, most, there's probably, if you track it back, there's more American money than there is South Korean, Japanese or Chinese money in European and, and uh, uh, Asian renewables. But it's just they don't have a renewables industry of their own to invest in. That's very advanced. So they tend to, to, to look where the business is and just look at the margins. And, and it's the same here. Simon, what has interested you this week? Well, I, I always like a good old perovskite story. So um, it, it was the, Toshiba as well. To, well, to, Toshiba announcing efficient polymer perovskite. Andres? It's another perovskite efficiency record, um, but it's one of the interest. It's one of the more important ones that occur uh, with a larger scale solar cell rather than these uh, test cells. So, as as I've remarked a few times in various issues, uh, you still have this issue of scaling up the test cells to larger sizes without getting deformations that halve the efficiency. Uh, so, Toshiba's got 15.1%. Uh, that, that's pretty good on a, on a 703 centimeter squared cell. Panasonic actually did slightly better than that, I think, with 16.1% on an 800 centimeter one uh, in February 2020. So Toshiba claimed that theirs was a record by saying, well, it's a record for polymer specifically. And I looked a little bit into, like, I thought, why is it two Japanese companies? And I actually forgot this, but um, it's uh, perovskites were originally discovered by a Japanese uh, guy, and, and he's still around, and he he says, well. You know, we may have discovered it, but the Chinese have 10 times as many researchers as us. So it looks like Japan still has some sort of research lead, but it won't last forever. I thought it was discovered in Russia. Uh, well, the perovskite, the uh, comp, sorry, I mean, photovoltaic. The oh, photovoltaic I see. OK, right, right, yeah. right. OK. Perovskite is a Russian name. I think. Right. OK, OK. Yeah. Anyway, mm. you were going to say something, Peter. Uh, only that is there any danger of these becoming products uh, sometime soon? Um, Toshiba has said uh, they have a, a goal of uh, silicon perovskite tandems by 2025, and uh, they've said they want to go to a 20% efficiency uh, module with 900 centimeters area as their next target. Um, so, so well, after it, 2025 or before then? Uh, probably before then. Yeah, because um, I mean, it doesn't. You don't need if you don't go with a tandem, uh, 
Mm. Um, you don't need to. You don't need a kind of heterojunction technology to merge them all. You know, it's a lot of. It's a lot more complicated and complex product. If you just go with a straightforward perovskite uh, panel, you'd be out much sooner. Yeah. So, so, so three years ago they were down at eleven point seven. So they they are improving. I guess the twenty percent. They should be able to uh, get it in a few years. There's a couple of other stories. I mean, we we were mentioning the what the the retrograde forces in the US that you mentioned earlier. With so I did a piece on the the budget reconciliation that's sort of plodding along in the US. And I mean, I, I mostly wrote about all the big spending they're planning to do. But probably the more important thing is that this is supposed to be 3.5 trillion according to Biden. Uh, but there's this one Democrat, uh, Joe Manchin, who um, is I think he's in. West uh, Virginia or somewhere that's a moderate state. So he says, oh, it depends on what we can afford in taxes and it should be maybe one trillion or one point five trillion. So there's really a lot of ongoing negotiations there. So we'll have to see how how big it actually turns out. So the the magic money tree or modern monetary theory dictates that it doesn't matter because, you know, and as a result, what tends to happen when you're going to rely on the magic money tree, which is you're going to issue um, funding from your central um, treasury, and you're just going to send that money as a, a line in the spreadsheet to a bank uh, as a transaction. You, you've borrowed money from the government or you've been given it. There tends to be this toing and froing about who's going to pay for it and how is it going to be paid for for some time. And then when what you end up agreeing is agreeing how um, some of it's going to be paid for this tax, some of it's going to come from that tax, and some of it's going to be come from um, some benefit that's going to come in the future, and it's a bit vague. And then in the end, you've paid for about 40% of it, and the rest of it comes from the magic money tree. And it, it's really, if you own the currency, you can issue currency. Uh, to pay for things and the, all the books uh, talk about are what you mustn't do is to promote inflation inflation is when um, too much money is chasing too few services and resources so as long as you've got services and resources to spend this on i.e the entire u.s economy benefits you throw three and a half trillion dollars into uh, accelerating the green um the, gr- the, the green movement in america and that goes into the pockets of the investors and the employees of all the renewables companies who spend it into the economy. So it's um, and, and there's you know money is the short shortage here, not the uh, it, it's not a, a, a shortage of service and product for that to buy. It's unlikely to spiral into the inflation. The uh, central banks will allow it, and um, it's just a matter of you know. Some people believe it's like a household budget. Can you imagine a household budget where the, the bank of dad could just generate new cash for you and give it to you? Yeah, household, household budgets and country budgets don't work like that. 